0: This is Something to Carp About, the podcast that brings Carpinteria California to you. I'm your host, Dennis Mitchell, and together we'll explore the town's attractions and issues. I thought we'd start this episode with updates on a few stories that are front of mind for Carpinterians these days. The city is all smiles over the triumphant return of the California Avocado Festival after a three-year COVID hiatus. Tens of thousands of people descended on Carpinteria for each day of the weekend event, which was preceded by locals' night on Friday. Later on, you'll hear my conversation with nude beach advocate Gary Summers as the festival was unfolding. Ever since I started this podcast, I've been pointing out that the city is at a crossroads. Big changes are coming along one of the two main drags, Linden Avenue. It's already home to local retail institutions like Rincon Design, The Worker Bee, and Cork Tree Sellers restaurants, Rory's Ice Cream, The Spot, and Murphy's Vinyl Shack. But now we're watching and waiting to see what happens in the 700 block, which used to be home to a hardware store. A large shopping and office district is about to take the place of the handful of buildings that occupy that block, and the plans reveal an influx of new businesses for locals to check out when the complex is finished in about a year. Beach Liquor and the student-run Coastline Souvenir Shop, stores that were on the corner of Linden and 8th Street, have both already closed in anticipation of the new construction, with groundbreaking expected any time now. As of this report, the project doesn't have a name yet, and it'll be built by a firm out of Santa Barbara. Taking a look at the published plans, we can expect at least three new restaurants and well over a dozen offices and other spaces that can serve visitors. There will be an open-air patio-style area that could be used by one of the restaurants, and Sightline.com reports new tenants will include Old Town Coffee and a group that's planning a rooftop bar and restaurant. It's got locals talking and in a much more united tone than the other potential change to Linden Avenue up the street. That change would come in the form of the proposed Surfliner Inn, a hotel project approved by the city council for the corner of Linden and 5th Street, where a municipal parking lot now sits. The city's approval came after heated objections by some citizens, who then went out and gathered petitions for a ballot measure aimed at stopping the hotel from being built. Proposition T has caused for much more political rancor than usual in CARP, with both sides of the issue accusing the other of misinforming voters. The group behind the petition is called Yes, Save Our Open Space, and they based the measure on the notion that the parking lot in question should be preserved as open space. Voters who vote yes will in fact be voting no on the hotel, even though there's no mention of the hotel in the wording of the measure. The pro-hotel faction is known as No on T Protect Carp, and their focus has been on attacking Proposition T as being potentially dangerous to the city's future. But their campaign materials make only scant mention of the hotel and try to keep the focus on possible negative outcomes if the measure should pass and so voters have been gathering all the information out there in order to make an informed decision on November 8th. Then we'll see the fallout one way or the other with legal challenges possible regardless of whether Proposition T passes or is rejected by voters. If you haven't, please go back and listen to podcast number six with Tina Finucci who is now solidly behind the effort to defeat Proposition T, and podcast number 10 with Annie Sly, one of the chief proponents of the ballot measure. And it's not out of the question that we will revisit the issue here on the podcast before the election gets here. Now we head deep into the heart of the community by visiting with the new editor of its weekly newspaper, Coastal View News. In our small, old-fashioned beach town, locals still love to have the paper in their hands instead of on a screen. So we all look forward to Thursdays when the new edition comes out. And so it was my great pleasure to sit down and chat with managing editor, Evelyn Spence. Evelyn, first off, let me say, long before I moved here, I was reading Coastal View News every week, and I've always been really impressed at the quality of the presentation. It's written as if it's a major market publication right here in our little town. It's just an exceptional small-town paper, and I want you to know us news junkies really appreciate that.
1: Well, that's good. We take a lot of pride in our work.
0: Very good. Uh, Since we already know and we're already here to talk about Carpinteria, let's start with you and how you got here.
1: Yeah, um, well, I uh, I grew up coming to... I didn't grow up in Santa Barbara. Uh, I grew up in more Southern California, but I came up here all the time growing up. I had family in the area. And then I came here for university. And once I graduated, I stuck around, decided to... Uh, Dip my hand in the journalism business and then um, started with Coastal View News.
0: So, you didn't get into journalism till after your high school days? I mean, uh, no,
1: I did journalism in high school, but uh, high school journalism is is a very different beast than college journalism and professional journalism.
0: Right, but were you a kid who watched the news and knew that this was something that you wanted to do?
1: Um, I always loved writing 100%. That was always what I loved to do, but it wasn't until I got into high school and then more into college that I realized that professional journalism, news reporting was something that I liked doing that I really wanted to do.
0: You said you UCSB?
1: I went to UCSB, yeah.
0: And what part of Southern California were you from?
1: I grew up in Orange County, okay. uh, like Irvine area.
0: I'm a Riverside guy. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. My mom currently lives in San Bernardino. So I've, I've kind of lived all around in Southern California and then I've- came up here growing up I have family in Santa Barbara grandmother in Montecito so it's it's this whole area has just kind of been my home
0: so it wasn't new to you when you came here at all
1: no absolutely not this is uh, part of the reason I actually came up here at least to pursue higher education was because you know I was familiar with the area I had a brother going to Santa Barbara City College at the time when I entered and I actually have a younger sister who also goes to the university we like to joke that all three of us just kind of went up we just moved like two hours up
0: very cool uh and, and I can appreciate even having been a SoCal, Santa Barbara's just a different beast.
1: Oh, Santa Barbara is by far the best place to live. If I, my current plan is to live here for the next several decades. We'll see how that turns out. But I love Santa Barbara. And in particular, just Santa Barbara journalism is incredible. There's several major newspapers here. And I'm fortunate enough to have gotten a job at one of them. Um, but I have friends at all of them. I know a lot of the newspapers recruit directly from the university newspaper because they themselves went through it. Um, but Santa Barbara journalism is, is just incredible. I'm yeah. in awe sometimes of the people that I've met and worked with.
0: Yeah, and the communities themselves. Carpentry and, uh, in particular. It's a strange little paradox, isn't it? <laughs> Carp comes off as this sleepy little beach town, but you won't find a more fiercely passionate group of people on any number of topics. How do you keep your finger on the pulse of this little community?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I do my best. I talk to as many people as I possibly can. Um, I've been with CVN prior to taking over as managing editor about two or three years. So some people know me, some people don't. But I do my best to keep up on socials. I go to events, as many as I can, um, just to try and keep up with everyone. Just get my name out there saying, hey here's my business card. If you know of something, if there's anything interesting or an event happening, just please reach out. We're always happy to, you know, talk to people. Carpinteria is so alive, which is, you mean people who come from outside of the area may not realize that, but it's an extraordinary place. I'm incredibly lucky to be able to actually cover it the way that we do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and the knowledge you can gain just by walking up Linden Avenue or showing up at IBC or something, just chatting with people or over, hearing what people are talking about. Yeah. That's how small town journalism starts.
1: Yeah, it's its community journalism is an absolute benefit. Like a lot of people pay more attention to national news, at the New York Times, but there's something particularly important about community journalism, about covering city council, about covering school board, because this is where the real action happens. This is where things start from the ground up. It's very important to pay attention to those things and to keep an eye on the local people in power.
0: Yeah, these are the things that impact your day-to-day lives. Exactly. As opposed to the national headlines. Uh, What were your priorities coming in? Um, If there have been any journalistic changes since you took over, they've been so subtle I haven't noticed.
1: (laughs) Um, No, uh, the last couple months have been mainly about getting on board. Um, My first focus once I took over as managing editor was hiring someone to replace me because I served as an assistant for about a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. So that took a bit. That was a bit rough. We spent about a month with mostly just me kind of doing most of the paper, uh, alongside our columnists, of course, our wonderful, wonderful columnists. Um, But now that we've got an assistant on board, um, my main priorities are probably just to... more closely cover city council. I've been covering city council about two, three years at this point, but I want to kind of go more in depth. Right now we're doing our Ask the Candidates series um, for the upcoming elections, so that's been good to do especially since um this is kind of the first time that everything's coming alive again covid very much disrupted local politics local ongoings so it's kind of very much just getting back into the swing of things starting up ongoing events section and stuff to that extent
0: and there's another layer to the political end you just said that Mm -hmm. we're in districts now instead of an at large election that happened during the pandemic so talk about a disruption in politics Mm -hmm. and everything roaring back now yeah going to be interesting um one of the first things i noticed after you became editor was that the news doesn't necessarily wait until thursday now (laughs) i've seen posts on the website during all parts of the week and that's been most welcome
1: yeah, that was actually mainly uh, more of a Mike Van Stry, our publisher. Um, once there's been something more breaking, I think one of the first stories that I was able to take on when I took over as managing editor was um, the new Surfliner implants. Right. So Mike decided to put that up on the website sooner because it was more urgent news. What I've started doing um, is... Usually the agendas for the following week, city and school board meetings, they don't come out until after we print. So what I've been doing is kind of typing them up and putting them on the website just Mm -hmm. so people can be more aware of the agendas, even if they can't see it in print, So definitely more of a focus on online. Like print publication is amazing, but there's also a benefit to being able to update things live and just keep things well aware.
0: Okay. The comprehensive piece on the (laughs) Surfliner, props to you on that. That was one of your first editions as editor, (laughs) and we hadn't really seen a lot of detailed coverage before that. That had to be an instance of what we just referred to, everybody's talking about that. Yeah. So it, it was a timely thing to do. As a local, are you surprised at how divisive that issue has become?
1: No, um, particularly because uh, I wasn't around... I mean, I know this this project was first kind of proposed by the city about four or five years ago. I wasn't covering journalism and carpinteria then, but as I've covered it over the last two years, people are incredibly passionate, particularly about something that they are very concerned is going to affect their day-to-day lives. So I'm not surprised about how divisive it's become, but I mean... When people are passionate, there's bound to be these issues. Yeah. Everyone is, is so, so concerned about just their day-to-day lives. And it's an incredibly important issue. It shouldn't be minimized. It's been interesting to see it go through council and, and see people speak up at meetings and just repeatedly. Because I, I do mainly cover city. I The Mon- Monday meetings are mine. So
0: Yeah, the passion comes in um, feeling that you have a part in the future of yeah. the town and that this is going to impact it yes or no yeah okay while we're on that very touchy subject objectivity is everything when it comes to quality journalism and every community has its differing political factions like we're talking about CARP no exception have you found yourself challenged by any particular group that says you're not being objective not just on that issue but any issue
1: I have but I think that anyone no one is always happy with coverage um we as journalists stick to objective standards we do our fact checking but at the end of the day there's always going to be someone who's upset because they don't think their side is represented or they think it's misrepresented but I mean at the end of the day my personal opinions on the issue do not matter they don't it matters about how it is covered about how people feel it matters whether or not I'm doing my job to represent both sides but my personal issue my personal opinions on Anything that I report on very much stay out of the conversation. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I'm right with you in sync at Carpinteria Valley Radio. Yeah. I'm trying to get the best information out on both sides of the issue. Actually, just the issue. Yeah. As if there are no sides. Here are the facts. And you can decide it on your own.
1: If you have opinions, I invite you right into our letters section. Please, please. We always love our letters section. We are a community forum. That's the point of it. If you have an opinion, if you disagree with our coverage, please, please write in. That's the whole point of a community newspaper. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's what I go to each week first now, letters yeah, to the exactly, editor. Yeah. But what oh. I was going to say is I have an extra layer added to there. I'm mm. in the county. I don't get a vote anyway. Yeah. So it would be kind of hypocritical uh, for me not to just be as objective as I can be and yeah. get, get the information out on both sides. So I, sh- uh, I think we all appreciate that. Do you ever face the sentiment that you're not enough of a local? I went through this in Santa Barbara and to a lesser extent here, where if you haven't been here you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, you don't know enough to be able to talk about it. You, you get that sentiment sometimes?
1: Sometimes, but at the end of the day, um, the publishers of Costa View know who I am. They hired me because of my journalistic experience, because of my experience in the area. I may not have been here 30, 40 years, unlike some other people, but at the end of the day, I love Carpinteria. I love Santa Barbara County, and I am passionate about reporting in the area. I've been a Santa Barbara County reporter about six years now, so I am pretty familiar with the area. Maybe not to the extent of decades long, which is an incredibly important point on that. But I am passionate about covering what I do, and I, I'm not shying away from any of it.
0: All right. And talk about uh, n- not having to, to pick and choose. There's so much to cover here. The new <laughs> 700 block of Linden, the skate park, the ongoing effort to keep carp just the way it is. Yeah. I don't know about you. I'm never at a loss for something to cover here.
1: Oh, yeah. We are always, always. Our paper was absolutely packed this week um i don't know if you've been, gotten a chance to pick up the paper but um our assistant editor june did a really nice piece about a time capsule they covered at cannellino um they were doing in a
0: throwback thursday yeah
1: they were doing a measure you construction at cannellino and someone accidentally cut into a copper time capsule that no one realized was there wow. um, and they opened it up and they actually just found just decades of documents which is an incredible find for one but it's also something that was just the principal reached out to us and said this is something that you guys should cover. This is really cool. So June went out there, took pictures, looked at it, and ended up being a really neat piece.
0: Wow, I wonder if some of that stuff will wind up in the History Museum.
1: Oh, Uh, definitely. Um, I think the principal is planning to look it over and then make copies and then donate it, or at least to my best recollection. It was a big paper this week.
0: I've got newbies on this podcast because uh, another guest is uh, Jamie Yar Mm. over at the museum, who we just took a tour with, and you'll you'll be hearing that later in the the podcast. Mm. And we touched on where the stuff comes from and mm-hmm. how much of it can be local, that just sounds like a, a gold mine. That mm-hmm. just sounds like a perfect find for that. Yeah. Uh, in taking over the paper, you inherited some of the fun features that inhabit, you know, every small town newspaper. You got the police blotter feature there, Commander's <laughs> Recap. Of course, Halos and Pitchforks. Oh, Halos
1: Which, and pitchforks. which before <laughs> now, it's
0: like Letters <laughs> to the Editor is my favorite now, but that's always been a favorite. And I remember somebody sending a pitchfork to the paper because there were no pitchforks the week before. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Those things kind of have a life of their own, no matter who the editor is.
1: Oh, 100%. I was prepping Halos and Pitchforks this week, just gathering all the ones that we'd received. And there were an unusual number of Pitchforks this week. There were. I'm not quite sure why. (laughs) Um, But it's always really interesting to be able to see that level of community engagement. Even with our on the road section, a lot of newspapers don't get... That's such close community engagement, which is an incredibly important part of a newspaper. Yes. Like you need that, and Coastal View News, before me, before everyone, just from its founding, has a very beloved place in the community. It's also what makes you know special. They they love their newspaper, at least for the most part.
0: Yeah, yeah, and what you're referring to when you read the pieces, it's it's as though you're getting a feel for what your fellow Carpenterians think. Yeah, and that's not always easy in a big city either, because yeah. there are districts and. You could live 20 miles and still be in the same city, and it's a whole different community, you know? Yeah. Um, It has to be a major scramble for you, staying on top of not just the news, but dozens if not hundreds of nonprofits and the schedule of activities for locals. How big is the staff, and how do you get all that done?
1: Um, We have about a core editorial staff, about six or seven, and then we have, give or take, anywhere from 25 to 30 columnists. Um, we have people coming on board and leaving depending on their schedules. Um, for the most part, editorial is handled by myself as managing editor and our assistant editor, June Starkey. Um, the two of us just try and have our hands on the pulse. We just try and kind of keep up with everything, um, reach out to communities, get, keep our events section lively because that's kind of the most important part where people reach out to and just look at what's going on this week. Okay, let's let's put it in events. Um, stories kind of come from everywhere. There's not one particular place that something pulls from. But we always love when people reach out, like that find from Canalino, and just say, hey, this is something interesting. This is something that, you know, the newspaper might be interested in covering. But there's not, not really one singular place that we uh, pull stories from.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, just as from a layman's viewpoint, uh, looking at the advertising, it's looking at a pretty strong base of advertising advertising locally and businesses that are just as proud to be here and want to shout their message from the rooftops uh, it looks that looks passionate too if, if that can be such a thing
1: yeah I uh, I can't speak on the advertising I don't handle the advertising at all I just handle... I was talking about
0: the nature of the way it looks oh yeah it reflects Carpenteria's passion yeah. you know even the ads
1: yeah
0: <laughs> um, and that's got that's got to make you smile as well yeah uh, you have an impressive circulation on newsstands for the print edition and I'm sure you know people in this area love to have that hard copy in their hands as opposed to reading it online, you're so young and that's such an old people thing.
1: (laughs) No, I have a, I think I have a copy of every single CVN that I have worked on in my house. I have the big stack in my room and then I have a couple of my favorites pinned up on my wall. The announcement that I was going to be managing editor, I have, I have the front page of that pinned on my wall in my house, which is a little cheesy, but I was also proud to be taking over such an amazing newspaper and it was it was it's a very good moment my my uh, family also has that issue saved well
0: that's great that's yeah. great there's a corollary with radio too it's yeah. like people would much rather have that button on the radio in the car or at the house than satellite or bluetooth and okay. streaming and all that stuff it's a, it's an old fashioned kind of thing I like
1: having the paper in my hand every time I go into the office I, I pick up an issue and I just I just flip through it there's something different about looking at it online versus just like you said having it in your hands it's it's, it's a nice feel
0: it's a process yeah. for me each week too for Carpenteria Valley Radio I'll get it uh, I start looking, I cheat, I peek Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesday evening, I know the stories are all posted, everything, yeah. so I can get an idea of what's coming up, and Thursday I'll wing it usually with the online edition, mm-hmm. but by Friday when I've had the print edition in my hand, there's a whole world of stuff I didn't notice before online.
1: Yeah, so. some, some stuff just doesn't it doesn't always fit online. Like, I know a lot of, um, a lot of the stuff that goes into the City Beat, there's a lot of little notes at the end that may not be, like, larger stories. Like, like, this week, my City Beat story, the main focus was the new ADU, JADU program, but at the end, I had some little summaries from the city manager, I had notes about Avo Fest stuff to that extent that may not just make it online just because they're, they're too short to be actual stories, but they're still important for people to have, which is why it's so important to actually pick up yeah. the print edition.
0: And the ads I was referring to, that's a different ballgame too yeah. on both. But like I said, still reflective of some creativity and pride.
1: Yeah. Everyone at CVN takes absolute pride in their work. I know the, our publishers are just so incredibly proud of the paper. We just hit, They just hit uh, 29 years He's the volume 29. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So next year's 30.
0: So you have a fat futures file, I imagine. And uh, once the Surfliner uh, issue is decided, once and for all in November, still a lot to cover. still a lot coming up down the pike. The fallout from that is mm-hmm. one, one story that's coming up. And I, I imagine I'm, I'm getting around to what your vision for the future of the paper is. I imagine, uh, you know, in the short term, it's staying the course. Mm-hmm. You're doing an outstanding job. And, and and we've talked about finger on the pulse with the community. But do you see any any kind of change or any shift uh, coming up in the future as a result of what could be a very contentious November election season, not just here, but everywhere?
1: Um, Not particularly off the top of my head. I do imagine that no matter what the result of Measure T, we'll be covering that for years if if measure t uh fails then we'll have the surf liner to cover if it passes we'll have the is- we have um the effects on the actual city's general plans and then the coastal commission decision so no not stemming from that specifically there's there's going to be content to cover no matter what
0: okay uh the website for our outstanding local paper is coastalview.com and i want to wish you luck going forward evelyn job well done uh, we look forward to the new edition every Thursday, and I think they made a really great choice appointing you.
1: Thank you. Well, it was uh, it was good to speak to you, and thanks for having me on.
0: Evelyn Spence isn't the only young, smart woman taking the helm of a local institution. For decades, the Carpinteria Valley Museum of History has enshrined thousands of artifacts that detail the city's colorful establishment and past. And I finally got over there for a private audio tour with the new director, Jamie Yar. Jamie, first of all, congratulations on taking over as executive director.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: How'd you get the job?
2: applying. (laughs) So I can tell you a little bit about myself. So I do have degrees in art history and I'm a formally trained art historian, but it was always the intent to work in museums. And I started out at the San Diego History Center, which used to be the San Diego Historical Society, and then worked in large and small museums in four different states before uh, coming on back to California, which is my home state, And I was very interested in a curator and director position, something that would have um, the ability to kind of guide the institution and provide some oversight in that way.
0: When did you realize this was your calling, museums?
2: Oh, museums. I would say that was after high school when I realized you could have a job in museums. Somehow I was always a museum-going child. I came from an artistic family, but I never thought about how the objects on view actually got there. Like the people behind the scenes that moved things in and out or made decisions. And I realized that after high school and took my first art history class and then the rest is history. Well,
0: even though it's all about carpentry as colorful history, the museum itself has its own story. Uh, It's a local institution, uh, and I know you're, you're fairly new here, but what can you tell us about how this museum got here and how it's thrived?
2: Yeah, you know, part of it's really the dedication of volunteers and very active community members. So the institution really started out as the Carpentry of Valley Historical Society, and we still are the historical society today. The museum is kind of a program of the historical society. So we had very invested individuals with the first folks really working on the museum in the 1970s. I see. And there have been a few directors over time, but the most recent director, David Griggs, who was here for 36 years, Mm -hmm. uh, did the most to establish the museum's foundation and legacy. And he came on right as they added that back L shape to the museum um, and really took over the exhibitions, the programming and made the institution into a viable museum as it is today.
0: Some big shoes to fill.
2: Of course, big shoes to fill. 36 years. I'm not sure that, (laughs) um, you know, I don't know, 36 years for me would be a very long time. But it's amazing, and I thank him for the work he's done to establish that.
0: Long before I moved here, I was always looking at the website, uh, CarpenteriaHistoricalMuseum.org, to check out all the photos of how the town evolved. Seems like the website's integral to getting the whole story if you can't make it here to the museum.
2: Absolutely. Visit our website. There are numerous um, back issues of our historical newsletter, The Grapevine, that are posted there. Uh, We also are going to be working on revamping the website for the future and hopefully getting more of our photo archives online so that everyone can see more of the history of Carpinteria.
0: At this point, Jamie and I took a brief break to take a tour of the museum. And we're entering the Carpinteria Valley History Museum with the new executive director, Jamie Yar, for a nice little tour. And it's my first time here, so I appreciate you being my tour guide.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Dennis. Excited to be here and have you here.
0: So a typical visitor uh, would come in the front door right here, and then where, where do we go from here? What yeah. do Yeah, so to a see typical
2: here? visitor would enter through the front door. We are open Tuesday through Saturday, 1 to 4 p.m. Okay and our museum is staffed by our docent volunteers of We have between twenty and fifty at any given time. Okay. very exciting, so what we would actually have you do when you first come in is come to the front desk and sign in for us. Uh, we use this book to track who's coming to the museum primarily because we use it for grants we use it for funding opportunities. We like to capture uh, individuals who are interested in history and interested in the region.
0: You find out who your audience is.
2: Exactly.
0: Okay, Uh, so where does the tour begin?
2: So then we begin as we enter through the gallery space. We come right in here and we have kind of an L-shaped gallery space. So we enter through the early years of Carpinteria. You're going to experience Carpinteria as it was Oh, in the 1800s and then into the turn of the century, so early 1900s.
0: I presume that's an old railroad sign, says "Carpenteria Elevation, seven feet.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just love it. And a large, uh, enlarged photograph uh, rendering of Linden Avenue in
2: 1915. Linden Avenue in 1915. We have trunks, we have... Various um, fruit containers as well. We even have a piece of asphalt from the early production years.
0: So visual, the... uh crates of oranges and avocados and other fruits and vegetables that always had their own logo. It's almost like it was an industry to come up with the best logo for your orange box. Branding, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you've got that well represented here. Uh,
2: So we think about our largest grapevine as well. Wow. Also why we call our newsletter for the museum the grapevine. Okay. So some nice tidbits of information if we think about the asphalt mines of the early 1900s as well, some great photographs and images. Where it
0: all started. Tell me more about this grapevine. This is news to me.
2: Ah, the grapevine, yes. So if you come to the museum, you can see one of the images here. Um, It was, as you can see from some of our didactic material, planted in 1842 uh, by some of our kind of founding, um, I guess you could say families of the region itself. And we have, um, for instance, some of the Baylard family uh, folks represented here. You might recognize Baylord Avenue from the freeway, mm-hmm. driving right on through Carpinteria. Yeah. Um, in 1904, by 1904, the vine had a trunk. So this is kind of what you're seeing in the photo that we're looking at. Here. It's huge. It's huge. <laughs> it is huge. Unfortunately, it does not exist anymore. So by the... Nineteen twenties it was no longer a functional grapevine. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh is that a reflection of maybe Carpinteria uh not taking off as a as a wine area?
2: I would say so. Um a little too damp in many ways, if you think about the kind of hot and dry of Napa, not quite the same as Carpinteria. And the
0: higher elevations up Santa Maria, Santa Inez, yeah. Yes, exactly.
2: And then we start to see the shifts in industry as well mm-hmm. as we move to different produce and asphalt and some of these things. You'll see toys and games, um,
1: dolls,
2: <laughs> lots of fun.
0: I see the electric questioner telegraph practice buzzer. This is right up my alley, old-time games and uh, stuff that the family could do at home. you got Lincoln Logs, an original set of Lincoln Logs, it looks like to me, yes. going way back.
2: Mm-hmm lots of fun here to see kind of the different aspects of carpentry of life over the years. We do kind of continue in time as we go through the museum. We do have a Chumash uh, area. We have an extensive collection of Chumash objects. Wow. And artifacts. Um, various usable objects, as well as some representations of uh, baskets, for instance. Yes. So this is um, one area of the museum that we will be... Uh, kind of revamping and rethinking as we move into the future. You know, I'm only a few weeks into my new role here. Yes. So the exhibits will uh, be rotated. We'll have um, fresh information for visitors, um, kind of a new setup, new exhibitions. So that's to come in the future. Very excited about um, not only showcasing what we already have on view, but also what's in our collection because we have thousands of objects.
0: You have a nice little pocket of the museum here mm-hmm. uh, with the match artifacts, uh, and it's already pretty impressive. Like I said, see hand, handmade rock bowls, exactly. uh, motor and pestle. And um, in terms of expanding it, what, what do you have in mind? Well, uh, we
2: want to think a little bit more about the Native American experience, thinking about working with descendants as well. We want to have Native voice in the exhibition. We want to think about a greater variety of objects that come from our collection, maybe expand this area of the museum a little further, make sure it's integrated into our full story. No. And, see, and over here on the left? Exactly. You will see representations of some of our early kind of uh, Victorian house um, furniture, dolls, various objects, fireplaces. We have a whole range of um, fashion from the era as well, books. So it's a whole kind of setup thinking about what it would have been like in, oh, you know, thinking about the 1910s, 1920s, yeah. Carpinteria. Uh, What would some of those original Victorian houses have looked like on the inside?
0: Tiffany lamp there and a (laughs) a yarn spinner.
2: Yes, exactly. So we're thinking about some of the the interiors and household uh, representations from the time. Think about stereo views and photographs. Oh my God, (laughs) a record player. A record player, (laughs) exactly. Some of our books in the back. Things like spectacles and and oil lamps and kind of where where are we headed as we move from the 19-teens into the 20s and beyond.
0: No coincidence, I'm wearing my vinyl T-shirt, and there you've got a a 78 RPM record on on a hand-crank Victrola. Very cool. Well-timed.
2: I like it. You planned. (laughs) (laughs) And this kind of extends to the next room. So this is also thinking about a bedroom from the period uh, as we move into the 20s and then into the 30s. Some of our, um, what we call kind of thinking about, like, mansion furniture or uh, wood furniture from the time. This We have um, children's objects, so this would have been, like, a little, you know, those little, um, like, walkers? Right, that, children that they can bounce around in a little, little bit. Bouncers. Yeah, yeah, yes, but I've never very, seen one that old. Literally a leather and metal version of an early uh, child's bouncer or something like almost a high chair or a game chair for children.
0: Just amazing.
2: Really? Hats of the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mentioned the spectacles, pens, and these sorts of things. We have an extensive collection of saddles as well, okay. so we're thinking about um, our full range of experience here. I'll take you over to this trunk, which is you know very interesting to see as well. So lots to look at in this museum. You yes, probably noticed already, but this is our Spanish mission period, so seventeen sixty nine to eighteen twenty one. A definite contrast from the Victorian um, house on the other side, the Mexican Rancho period then from the 1920s to 1940s. So we have saddles from that period. Um, We have a really interesting uh, powder horn in the case as well. One of these trunks that would have gone along on some of the steamer ships.
0: Amazing. Just amazing stuff. Uh, and and uh, I love the way you, you let things evolve as you move through the museum. This is really good. Yeah, this and, is, uh, and
2: lots to look at. We really want people to investigate what's interesting to them, what sparks um, kind of their carpentaria experience. We have a section on World War One. Look and at that. The war experience um, related to, of course, carpentaria but to the United States kind of as a whole. Mm-hmm. So we do have... Um, military regalia and uniforms. We do have, for instance, tools, utensils. We have helmets Full and photographs, which is a large part of our collection as well. We have right. extensive photo archive. You yeah,
0: see the, uh, the bayonets and uh, a vintage 48-star flag. It looks yes. like the real deal, an authentic, uh, n- not a replica. Uh, that looks like it... It, it weathered that storm. Yes,
2: it definitely did. And things like <laughs> a, a safe and a typewriter and some of the ways that technology is evolving during the period. We have pianos, early cameras. Mm-hmm. You can see some of those saddles I was mentioning. And something else really fun for our Carpinteria longtime residents are the signs, literally signs of the time. So businesses that um, have existed or still exist, uh, Carpinteria a sign when we had a population of 6,000. Wow. So lots of fun to see the memories of Carpinteria's kind of changing business structure. I've
0: seen many a post of Mills Drugs in historic Carpinteria photos, and there you've got the sign. We've got the sign right there, which is very cool. (laughs) Signs of the times. It's under uh, under that marker if you're looking for it at the back of the building.
2: We have um, quilts and textiles in our collection.
0: And what I see uh, that you're starting to touch on with, <laughs> with uh, the, the musical instruments and, and displays and whatnot in this quilt is the artistic side. Art yes. is such a huge part of carpentry, and that's been part of its evolution as well.
2: Exactly, which is exciting to me as an, an art historian, um, by training, to see the different ways that carpentry has engaged with the arts, mm-hmm. whether that be Paintings and drawings, whether that be prints or quilts, we have a full range here, which is really exciting.
0: Everything well reflected. Mm. I'm really impressed.
2: I just have to mention as we go, a fantastic dollhouse for for those youngsters in your life or anyone who's interested in sort of the literal miniature version of um, Carpinteria Living. Such an interesting object to have. That's
0: a far cry from the, uh, you know, manufactured kit that you buy for a dollhouse these yes. days. This is a handmade, beautiful, one of the most beautiful dollhouses I've ever seen. Little tiny uh, items of furniture that are handmade and detailed down to the bone, down to the, uh, the pull knobs on the drawers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all done so perfectly. I'm really impressed. We're, if, you, if we're stopping on this, tell us where this came from. Yeah, what is so the history of this the- beautiful dollhouse?
2: That, Dennis, might be beyond my knowledge of three weeks here on the job. (laughs) Um, But what we do know is that there was a docent named Beverly Schroeder who was founder of the Carpentaria Mini Makers, which was a miniature artisans group, uh, that they felt the dollhouse should go to Girls Inc. Um, Girls Inc. junior craftsperson could learn the skills to make the dollhouse a showpiece, and the dolls and dollhouses are the nation's number two hobby just behind Stamp and Coin Collection. I see. So we do know that the dollhouse came to us then in the 1990s, and it is essentially, it almost has like a mission architecture a style to it, these replicas of tile, the tile roof and the tile floor. We do have, as you mentioned, Dennis, and very astutely, everything is individually made, handmade, not manufactured, um, from a store. Everything is painted and colored, so you have small pieces of furniture that are blue in the back. Um, very interesting dolls playing in their rooms and things. It's a, lovely, it's a lovely piece with a great history that connects us to Girls' Inc. in town as well. A-
0: acknowledging that you're new here, but I imagine you're going to see, and that the museum probably regularly sees, collectors going crazy over this stuff and, and asking all kinds of questions, wondering, where else could I might maybe get something like this for my collection. I just can't believe all the all the detailed stuff in there. It's really cool. I know,
2: you know, it's really amazing what people bring to us and what people um think about in terms of their own collections mm-hmm. everything from photos to the quilts we saw before literal vehicles yes a dollhouse we get the full range what i love about this job is you never quite know day to day what you're going to see or what someone's going to come in a story an object
0: and people wouldn't think that with the museum they think it's going to be the same thing every day but i see there is a whole lot to discover here and here we are in a room with vehicles
2: Yes. So we do actually have vehicles inside of the building itself, and we have numerous, and you'll see here as we continue on, pieces of farm equipment as well. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the vehicle collection, we do have farm equipment um, from the lima bean days. We have a walnut shucker in the back. Um, we have furniture outside in our courtyard area, as well as things like water pumps a full range of thinking about carpenteria in terms of its agricultural production okay. and uh, kind of how that has also changed over time, as we know. So we do have a kitchen set up. So if we think about almost like a farmhouse kitchen, uh, thinking about the stove, the use of an icebox, uh, the way that we would have operated very differently than we do today. Mm -hmm. So you can see all of the various also cans, um, canned goods, that branding we talked about earlier, Yeah, uh, some of the, the dolls and almost like, um, you know, moving out of the pioneer period right, and right. into a more established It seems like region.
0: a Quaker Oats can, MJB exactly. coffee. These are things that do command a bit of a price at, at collector shops and antique stores and consignment shops. So exactly. It's kind of like wallowing in all of it. It's really great.
2: And, and great memories, too. Yes. Like, when did you grow up? What did you use? What did you see? How has that changed over time? And that goes along with the schoolhouse, too. So we have a, a schoolhouse uh, set up here. Uh, with desks from the period, books that were utilized in decades past, it's a really fun setup to think about the changes in our school structures as well.
0: Those little tiny desks with the little tiny children's head. I know,
2: tiny desks, <laughs> tiny hands, small pencils, cursive writing. Yeah, which is imagine kind of that. Gone That's a, side. That
0: belongs in a museum as well. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it very
2: much does. And then kind of our, our ending point here in the L-shaped gallery, then, that uh, farm equipment that I was talking about. So okay. um, we have various tools. Mm-hmm. Again, we think about the... Um, the walnut shucker. we have, uh, let's see here, horseshoes as well, various uh, saws and hammers. And thinking about, again, that extensive um, use of tools, whether it be on the farm or on the ranch, and, and some of those changes as well.
0: Great tour. I could totally get lost in here for several hours, just soaking up all the details of all the things that you see. I mean, when you walk into the room... There's a big obvious thing to look at, but then you dig deeper, read between the lines, go in and look at all the details of everything. It's really fascinating. Great tour, Jamie.
2: Thank you, Dennis. And as we kind of enter, I just wanted to mention, you mentioned the car. So for any car aficionados then that Ford get my is correct here,
0: 1928 model A. Okay. Uh, so. And uh, uh, nicely decorated with a skeleton <laughs> driver and his skeleton dog. Tis the season. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> Tis the season. I can see uh, the rich multicultural history is well represented here at the museum. Immigrants have been a key part of the town's evolution, and that's right here in front of us in so many little pockets of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what I'm looking forward to diving into and expanding in the future, the diverse stories of Carpinteria. And what stories uh, is the museum telling? What stories have we not told yet? And how can we make sure that those are accessible to everybody?
0: What I saw in our little tour that we just held there uh, is the uh, representation of our agricultural history and the industries it's produced. Lemons, avocados, cut flowers dominated our landscape for decades. Do you foresee future exhibits about cannabis now that it's such a big part of the scene here?
2: You know, I think that's a great question, and I have to say one that I just don't know yet. Uh, I haven't had a chance to explore. I'm only a few weeks in, so... It's something that's incredibly, I think, interesting and somewhat polarizing to our community as well. Uh So I think there's an opportunity to tell many sides of that story.
0: And it's a story that is still being told. Exactly. So it's not like you have a an arc to look at everything and are able to present it like you have with past agriculture. I imagine you have a good working relationship with the local school district. Is there outreach that way? Field trips and such.
2: Yes, there has been in the past many field trips. There's been educational programs. We do. lot with uh, Chumash history and thinking about state history as well. And that is the plan to continue and to expand. I'm looking towards um, student internships, greater outreach to schools where we, the museum, can go to the school and bring historic artifacts to the classroom. Uh, It can be expensive for students that need to be bused into the museum. Um, School districts don't have funding for that anymore. So we're looking at some ways to expand those programs and think more clearly about uh, reaching out rather than just having come, people come to us.
0: Okay. It is a fascinating array of items that you have here uh, that, that truly reflect the history and get into your mind as of what things must have been like. Uh, what is the process of acquiring more stuff? Uh, do people contact you out of nowhere and say, Hey, I've got this. It's been sitting in the garage. Or do you have part of your staff on the lookout? for stuff like that?
2: You know, we're, we're always on the lookout. We have um, really dedicated docents and volunteers who are often long-time CARP residents or come from long-time CARP families, so we definitely have donations of objects come that way. But I would say most of our objects come from folks who just call us up or stop by and say, "I did. I found this thing, it's from my family, is it interesting to you, does it fit the museum structure? So it's um, it's pretty much all donations at this point. We typically do not purchase objects.
0: You don't just open the doors to the museum each day. You have some really cool events regularly to get everybody involved. Uh, fill us in. Tell us, tell us what the museum does to get more customers. Yeah,
2: exactly. So we do have a number of events. Uh, we ha- typically have a monthly marketplace event, which is a lot like a flea market or a swap meet. It usually happens on the last Saturday of the month. So we have one upcoming on the 29th of October of this year. And we have vendors come in with all different types of objects, everything from, oh, you know, jewelry and clothing to vintage works to clocks. We even have a knife sharpener uh, that comes now, which is really fun. Um various objects that the museum sells as well. And these are all objects donated to us for the purpose of selling them to fund the museum. So it is a fundraiser. For us, I
0: was going to get to that exactly which items you know have to do directly with the museum, and and but the outside vendors have got to know the flavor and the feel of what shoppers would be looking for.
2: Exactly. Yep. And the vendors also help to fund the museum as well when they purchase a space for the market. That is helping to fund the institution.
0: Carpinteria thrives on the work of volunteers. Uh, I see it every day and all the time here, and it's also a key part of what you do here. Uh, and you mentioned this in our tour. Do volunteers have to have any special training or knowledge uh, to help out here.
2: No special training or knowledge. We provide that training and knowledge as you go. So we have a strong core of docents who have put together a very sort of key history to Carpinteria as it pertains to our exhibits. Mm -hmm. And then docents are trained in that way. And we have volunteers who help with the marketplaces, volunteers who help with collections. There's a wide range of opportunity and we're always looking for more volunteers.
0: You offer memberships. People can donate to help out. What's involved with that and what does somebody get with that?
2: Yeah, so memberships range from $35 for individual all the way up to 500 for a Life Membership. So there's a whole range of membership options that are available. Um, You get discounts in our museum store, discounts on our field trips, uh, which are essentially trips that we take to other museums together. So that has operated in the past um, anywhere from one to three times a year. A group of members will travel to another museum to see what's happening in the region. Often this is a museum in Los Angeles or uh, maybe, you know, a museum Oh, in Orange County or here in our region. Yeah, Santa Barbara, Ventura. Because it's all connected in
0: Carpinteria's history. Yes, exactly.
2: So we travel together and take that as a learning opportunity and kind of take a travel day to do those things. You also have uh, the subscription to the Grapevine newsletter, which is uh, published every other month, and that will um, arrive in your mailbox as a member at any level. Um, The museum itself is free, so anyone can come anytime uh, to see the museum, but the memberships also help to fund the infrastructure here, so help to building projects, maintaining the building, the collections, um, helping to make sure that we 're we 're thriving and functional
0: and you absolutely do not have to be a member to donate. I see little donation envelopes as you walk in.
2: Mm-hmm. just
0: chip in and help out
2: exactly a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars it all helps us to to survive and thrive
0: again, the website is carpenteriatormuseum dot org and it's been our great pleasure to chat with the new executive director, Jamie Yar. Congratulations on the new position and, and thanks for uh, filling us in. Uh, I feel like I've been here many times already just through the great tour you gave us. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dennis. I really appreciate it. Please come down and visit us at the museum.
0: If you're planning a trip to Carpinteria, or if you just didn't know, the museum is located at 956 Maple Avenue. <coughs> If you leave Highway 101 southbound at Bates Road and make a couple of quick right turns, you'll be in the parking lot for Bates Beach, an unofficial title for a long stretch of oceanfront that winds westward toward Carpinteria. And as you enter the long downhill walkway down to the beach, there's a sign that says, NUDITY PROHIBITED. That's technically true, but at the far west end of the beach, you'll find plenty of nudity on any nice day. There is a move afoot now to legalize it, and during the Avocado Festival, I had a clothed conversation with activist Gary Mussel. I'm intrigued by your effort, and uh, I want to ask you how it's going.
3: It's going great. We've been at this uh, for about 15 years. We finally got approval in 2017. Uh, the county signed off on it. The city signed off on it. The police chief signed off on it. And they only come down to the clothing optional section of the beach if there's a 911 call for lewd behavior or something that out of you know, that can't be handled. We, we created a beach ambassador program, if you notice my blue hat. Right. We're down there on the beach, and when we're down there, we patrol the beach, be sure everybody behaves themselves. Uh, nudity itself is not enforced by anybody, uh, by county consent. Uh, they want to lay their towel out and just sound great, but if they are doing anything that they shouldn't be doing, we will come up to them and say, you know, get a a room, go somewhere. Usually just walking up to them will get to the stop because people don't want to be discovered. And so we've been at that for five, six years. It's been fine. And um, we get as many as 50 people on on a weekend. Uh, so let uh, me ask you, Is
0: uh, technically right now, is it legal or not legal?
3: There's really only one legal beach in California, and that's up at Pirates Cove in San Luis Obispo. Even Black's Beach in San Diego, which is the big popular one, yeah. is not technically legal. Mm. It's just not enforced. It's not enforced because it brings in a lot of money to the local... Uh, oh, sure. County. It's infamous. Yeah, we yeah. bring we bring money into the tarpidria.
0: So it's the same deal here where there's yeah. there is a there's a written law on the book somewhere, but it's just not the, enforced. There's a county
3: law, and they say we enforce it everywhere. In fact, there's a sign down there with the beach that says no nudity, and it's enforced everywhere but on the section that's been designated.
0: Which is the, like the far west side yeah, of base beach.
3: Yeah, 1,800 feet on, um, further to the west side, going down the ramp it's up there. So
0: what is your effort today involve? Just uh, thanking people? or It's not like you're trying to get signatures on a petition or anything.
3: No, well, we have a petition online. um, uh, I signed it. Thank you. (laughs) Um, If we get enough signatures, then the county says that they will feel there's enough of an interest that they may consider uh, amending the county law but we're ways away from having enough signatures. So what we're doing in the meantime here is one, thanking everybody. Number two, informing people. Half the people come up and says, where's Bates? Or I didn't know there was a new section of Bates. So it's informational. Uh, we also have our literature that says and do's and don'ts so they don't misbehave when they go up there. Uh, that what was there for. And as a thank you, we um, we have uh, one of our members owns a bed and breakfast in al a very nice place. And he's offered um, two days, two nights. And so we're doing a free raffle here for anybody. And on Sunday, we'll draw for it. And somebody gets a free weekend at at this wonderful bed and breakfast. In the meantime, we're giving out a a beach towel once a day here. Um, So there's more than just the the grand prize. We also have some people who want to buy a clothing optional uh, sign so we brought some of those down. They're for sale. That's cool. Um, and the rest of, uh, We have a spinning wheel that you can spin and get free little giveaways like a, a beach ball or a lip balm or an memory board. And that's a, um, that's our thank you to the community. And the other, that's the other thing we're doing is we have a, a pocket full of $2 bills. $2 bills is the currency that nudists use in carpenteria. We buy everything with $2 bills. So when we go down the street here to buy our food here at the Avocado Festival, we're using $2 bills. <laughs> uh, so they know what nudist has bought in. That's fantastic. We ask them to. Distributed as change, if they do that, and if other people then give that as change, it magnifies the whole marketing campaign, right?
0: Very cool. Well, maybe you should write, you know, uh, pro-nudity on the bill. I, I, I've like got that.
3: a card that goes with
0: it. Oh, all right. Cards, very, very, very good. Let me ask you: do it, it, down there at the at the beach, at the section of the beach, is it like a regular crowd of locals? Is mm-hmm. like the, the the usual people each week, or yeah. do people actually come in from other areas?
3: Actually, um, um, the beach attracts people from as far away as Orange county or up as far as Santa Maria in all honesty, uh, Ojai um, it's your normal cross section of people at the beach. If they know it's a a clothing optional beach, you get the clothing optional people who say oh boy, I want to go there, I can be safe so you get a little wider geographic attraction to it but it's just normal people Uh, they do everything at the beach, they throw frisbees, they play volleyball um, they play with their dog everything you can do except they do it with the, without the cumbrance of a bathing suit. Right. And if you've, if you've never skinny-dipped in the ocean, um, it's got to be on, I recommend it be on everybody's uh, bucket list. You've got to do it once in your life just to feel how wonderful it feels. That was my thing. Uh, Forty years ago, I went in a dare. Uh, I thought it would be a one-time deal. I loved it so much, I never stopped. <laughs> and I haven't had a bathing suit in 30 years, and neither has my other, my other half and uh, we just skiddy tip all the time and it just feels so much better also the sand doesn't the wet sand doesn't get clogged up in your suit um, you dry out the sand dries out It's, it's just so easy. many advantages there are tons of advantages to it it's just that people have this tape in their head from their Mother or their nun, they say, You will not, you will not, thou shalt not <laughs> run around naked in public. Right. If you yeah. do this, you will go to hell. <laughs> and uh, most people have grown another thing. I don't, I'm an adult now, I don't do what my mother said. Uh, but some people still carry that. I'll, I have to lose 30 pounds, I have to do this, I have to do that without realizing that if you look at us, you know, we're all overweight, we're all, um, we're all misshapen, um, all ages. Um, we have a sense of body acceptance. That's the key word. We we all would like to lose weight. We would all would look a little different. But we accept ourselves as a starting point. And we will do better ourselves. But we are starting here. Um, and everybody around us is in the same boat. And we all say we love you anyway.
0: Yeah, it's all about inhibition and feeling good regardless. It's, it's,
3: it's how you feel inside. Exactly. Uh, it's not for everybody... Never ambush your spouse or your girlfriend to go down to it if they're not ready for it, because they will hate you forever. Yeah. But if you're ready for it you want to give it a try, um, it is optional, so you don't have to. Uh, sometimes you'll have a guy go down there and bring his other half, and she says, well, I'm not going to get out of my breathing seat and about three hours later she's out of her top and yeah. about two yeah. hours later she's out of her bottoms. and she's like what the hell and then she's into it she loves it All right. um, and, and people need to understand that it's a personal preference thing And we support whatever your decision is uh, we're not going to Um, Judge you because you're dressed. Just don't judge us if we're not dressed.
0: Got you. Gary Muscle. you're doing a great thing. And I really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us on Carpenteria Valley Radio. I appreciate appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right. You can learn more about the effort to completely legalize nudity at Bates Beach at friendsofbatesbeach.org. Something to Carp About is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Stitcher, Potomatic, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're sponsored by Pacific Prairie Productions, specializing in radio syndication and podcast production. Call 805-500-3144. Talk to you next time. I'm Dennis Mitchell.